0: welcome to the all of christ for all of life podcast presented by canon press this week's episode is a talk from greg strawbridge entitled end times madness throughout history check out the full series for he must reign an eschatology of victory on canon plus now we're all familiar with these images of the end of course the word eschatos is the greek word for end or last so it's eschatology is your view of last things or end things. And it does encompass more than things like the tribulation and millennial kingdom. It encompasses things like personal eschatology, what happens to you when you die before the resurrection, that kind of thing. But we'll look especially at the more sensational aspect of it. So we think about the end. We have these images of Jesus over Jerusalem, the Wailing Wall. And we have these images that come to us from... (laughs) pin the tail on the newspaper, Gog and Magog, and Russia is going to attack Israel, that kind of thing. And obviously the images of the apocalypse of some sort, um, nuclear. And of course the endless charts we see, of course, those charts. Now I think we had, is Charity here? Yes, so you're telling me that uh, Clarence Larkin, the greatest book on dispensational truth, is filled with all these charts. And is your grandfather that had all these charts? Is that? Okay, yeah, so you can... (laughs) Bring those in next time for show and tell. Um, and then, of course, we also have had a popular exposure to these kinds of teachings through the Left Behind series. The end time profits of Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins sold over 80 million copies and many movies. And as uh, one of my friends said one time, well, it's bad theology, but at least it's written very poorly. <laughs> so. Uh, um, and you can see the movies, Kirk Cameron, starring Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron actually now believes what I believe. He converted to reform, post millennial approach. And the most recent ver- installment of that on the big screen was Nick Cage. And I had not seen this, so I actually thought, yeah, I'm going to pull this up before I make fun of it. I should probably watch it. I'm not going to make fun of it, but it is very dreadful. It's a dreadful. <laughs> not only is the theology mistaken in my view, but it's really not very well done. Okay. So, what can we do here? Well, the outline of our study is going to be we 're going to look today in times madness through history, so we 're going to find out that actually all the way through Christian history, people have been date setting and thinking that various things are about to happen um, so that 's what we 're going to do today then we 're going to turn to the Bible and really do an in depth study of like how do you form the expectation of what the world is going to be like and how the kingdom grows. And I want to do that from 1 Corinthians 15. And then we have key prophetic texts that we'll look at, such as, you know, Matthew 24, uh, "The Man of sin," in Second Thessalonians, Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Revelation. And then we'll talk about how that applies uh, to us. So I have four weeks for this, and then on the fifth week, uh, the December beginning of December, I'm going to be at, in Cincinnati doing an ordination service for our mission church. Plant there, and the church East River in in Cincinnati. Okay, so let's talk about the predictive eschatology of the of the past and what people have thought. So this book was written by Francis Gumerlock. It's called The Day and the Hour: Christianity's Perennial Fascination with Predicting the End of the World. And so Francis Gumerlock is a Latinist, and he publishes things like this: Nero Antichrist, Patristic evidence of the use of Nero's name in calculating the number of the beast in the Westminster Journal or a translation of, of Ticonius exposition of the apocalypse or early latin commentary so he's essentially the world expert on the history of the church and especially latin revelation related historical related stuff and if you go to word mp3 which you all should you'll see that he's got five presentations at ETS on these kinds of arcane subjects. So his book was published by American Vision. It goes through and shows essentially that all the way through church history, there have been these kinds of predictions. So let's look at a few of these. We'll walk through it. In the early church in the second century, there was a, a charismatic kind of movement. It's very parallel to modern day charismania. Does anyone know the name of it? Here's a picture of the guy. Montanos, look at that, educated group here. Yeah, so Montanus got this movement going, and um, he believed that they were living in the last days, and so a great following, uh, he had a great following. So one of his followers named Priscilla, 170 AD, described that Jesus had come to her to te- tell her that the new Jerusalem would descend in this area, Pepuza, Phrygia, still like north Asian minor. And so what she said was, Christ came to me in the form of a woman dressed in a bright robe and placed in me wisdom and revealed to me that this place is the holy and that here the Jerusalem from heaven is coming down. There's nothing unusual about Jesus coming to you disguised as a woman and sleeping beside you in a bed at night. That's not unusual, but telling you that this is the place where the Jerusalem's going to come down. And that's what, that's what happened. Um, Moving on. So in Syria, so if you remember Syria is, is, well, you can see the map there important area there for the early church growth. And about 200, one of the bishops there persuaded many under his pastoral care to make their way to a desert to await the second coming of Christ. So it happens not only in the 20th century, No, brethren, he said, that the last judgment will take place within one year. If what I tell you does not come to pass, have no more faith in the scriptures and do as you please. This is an especially bad form of trying to enforce your views. And when when anyone date sets, they often make it so that you can't get out of it. I got called this past week for an extended warranty on my car. Have you ever, have you ever had those calls, the extended warranty people? This was the tactic of the salesman. I said, well, yeah, I'd like to, actually I'd like to investigate it, tell me about it, what'll it do, you know? And then he said, well, we'll waive right now the in-person inspection. And I'm like, okay, sure, tell me how much it costs, you know, what if I pay it up front? So finally he's like, well, let me let you talk to the manager. So then the manager was the hard sale, like he's like, we already waived the in-person inspection, so if you get off the phone now and you don't buy it, then you'll never have another shot at it. And no dealership will give you this warranty. And I'm like, well, I'm still kind of researching this. First time I've even had a conversation about it. But he's like, no. And he just kept insisting. So it's kind of like that. If you don't take my view of this end of the world thing, then have no more faith in the scriptures at all. Just you're, you're cut off. And that's kind of what he was trying to sell me on. OK, so what else? Well, in 234, during a local persecution prophetess in An- Anatolia urged uh, to go immediately to Jerusalem and await the second coming. And I'm skipping many things. The book, this uh, Francis Grimlock book, is arranged like this, like page one is. In 68 AD, somebody said this, and it just goes right on through. It's arranged in chapters, but essentially it's just a chronological list with uh, copious documents and uh, documentation. So Cyril of Jerusalem, and I'm, I'm skipping lots. I'm just bringing out some to give you the overall flavor. Cyril of Jerusalem believed that the Antichrist was coming soon. He wrote, but this aforesaid Antichrist is to come when the times of the Roman Empire have been fulfilled and the end of the world is drawing near. This, therefore, is the falling away and the enemy is soon to be looked for. Also, Donatus, Donatus, a uh, person that, that Augustine took to task because Donatus' followers never gave in to Roman persecution so they never, so many of them were maimed and harmed and and tortured and such and later when the church became legal in under in the days of Constantine and such the Donatus looked at those who who compromised as being compromised and they were really hard and they saw themselves as the true church and Augustine argued against that that's where you get this language by the way in confessional language of the efficacy of the sacraments does not depend upon the minister who does it, does not depend upon the officiant who does it. It was really out of that Donatist controversy because they were saying, the Donatists were saying, if you were baptized by someone that compromised during the days of Roman oppression, then your baptism is invalid, right? So that kind of a holier-than-thou point of view. And so he believed that their sect was the specially chosen 144,000 in Revelation. There was no doubt but that the Antichrist, having been conceived by an evil spirit, was already born and had by this time reached the years of boyhood while he would assume power as soon as he reached the proper age. Now that statement could be made by someone today. There's no doubt that the Antichrist has been born and is living on earth. Have you heard this kind of thing? And guess who said this? Martin of Tours in 396, right? So, <laughs> you know, the kinds of things you would hear today, people claiming, uh, we go way back on that kind of stuff. Does anyone know who this uh, figure is, the picture? Gregory the Great. He was a very important bishop of Rome, and he, he kind of canonized the music of the church that kind of said it. That, that was good and bad in some ways, but uh, Gregorian chant, if you've ever heard of that. He's the guy. And around that time, Apollinarius of Laodicea predicted that by 490, the Antichrist would appear, Israel would be converted, and Jerusalem would be restored based on Daniel 9. The African bishop, Hilarinius, in 397, said the end could be expected 470 years from the death of Christ, which would be March 25th, AD 500. And Gregory the Great, the end of the world uh, is already close to hand, and the reign of the saints is coming which can have no end. And now that this end of the world is approaching, many things are at hand, which previously have not been to wit, The changes of the air, I'm not sure what that referred to, terrors from heaven and seasons contrary to the accustomed order of times, wars, famine, pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. Okay, now this is end times, edition, end times Madness Islam edition, okay? So the first one was, you know, early church, now it's Miss Islam edition. There's, there's Muhammad talking to the angel Gabriel. In 637, the Muslims captured Jerusalem and soon after built the mosque on the Temple Mount. So Sophronius, the patriarch of Jerusalem at the time, believed that this act of mosque on the Temple Mount was the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation in Daniel and Matthew 24, a collection of apocalyptic writings in 700 called The Revelations identified the rising Islamic empire as the end-time Gog and Magog. And so it was that for a long time, really up into the Reformation, that Islam was identified with those kind of biblical characters, Gog and Magog. Now the end times madness, Viking edition, okay? In 793, an attack upon Ireland and Scotland by the Vikings was interpreted by some as a sign of impending Judgment Day, one Christian bishop in 907 interpreted the Hungarian hordes raiding Saxony as horsemen of the apocalypse, the forces of Antichrist coming from the kingdom of Gog and Magog. Around 960, Bernard of Thuringia claimed that God had appeared to him and revealed to him the exact day and hour in which the world would be obliterated and that the last day was at hand. And then again, read read this statement like you don't know who wrote it. We see clearer than daylight that in the process of the last days, as love waxes cold and iniquity abounds among mankind, perilous times are at hand for men's souls. You could hear this on the radio today. But it was said by uh, Rudolphius Glaber in 1030. So (laughs) there is always this kind of thing. Once again, End Times Madness Viking Edition. Now, does anyone know the the reference there? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) trogdor the burninator there so anytime trogdor the burninator in the form of viking shows up then people are wont to say this is the end of the world and this happened uh frequently and so the saxon bishop wolfstan interpreted the danish invasion of england in 1010 as a sign of the nearness of the end a thousand years or more have passed since christ was with men in human likeness And now Satan's bonds are extremely loose, and the Antichrist time is near and at hand. So the numbers in Revelation, either 666 or 1,000 years, often get drawn in and pulled in some way or the other. So here in this case, he's counting from the time of the incarnation to now. So once you get that, oh, it's 1,000 years, all right, well, look what's going to happen. Read the end of Revelation. How about End Times Madness Crusaders edition, okay? So... For a few years before the first crusade, Benzo, Bishop of Alba, foretold that Henry IV would march on Jerusalem, meet the Antichrist there, overthrow him, and reign until the end of the world. Uh, Pope Urban said, "...it is the will of God that through the labors of the crusades, Christianity shall flourish again at Jerusalem at these last times, so that when Antichrist begins his reign there, and he shortly must, he will find enough Christians to fight." Joachim of Fiore in 1202, he died in 1202, identified the Islamic leader Saladin, a very important figure in the crusade time. Uh, He was a Muslim who was in control of Jerusalem, basically, as the sixth head of the dragon in Revelation. Uh, Believed that the seventh head of the dragon represented the Antichrist, and that he might have already been alive and living uh, in Rome. The one who now is, that's Revelation 17:9 is Saladin, who now oppresses God's church and holds it captive along with the Lord's sepulcher of the holy city, Jerusalem, and the land where the Lord walked, but he will soon lose it. Um, I don't think that's actually what happened historically. He didn't lose it, I don't think. I'm not too up on my crusade's history. But it is important to know that reference in Revelation 17. What is being said there, we'll look at this in depth in the coming weeks, but what is said there is... This kingdom that he's talking about is composed of seven hills, and the seven hills are seven kings. And he says, one now is, right? And one shall be shortly. And so that becomes one of the ways you can consider dating and identifying what, what Revelation is talking about. But he is, of course, assigning this to late medieval times and the Crusades. In Times Madness Italian Edition. Who's that? That's right. So the Franciscans had many in their order who believed that their founder, Francis of Assisi, death 1226, was the angel bearing the seal of the living God mentioned in Revelation 7-2. Many uh, in their order, they believed that their order constituted the sealed of, 100, of 144,000 in Revelation 7-4 who would renew the church in the last days. In 1225, Gerard of San Donino proclaimed in Paris that the new age of the Holy Spirit had arrived, that St. Francis was the angel bearing the sign of the living God in Revelation 7 and the everlasting gospel in Revelation 14, 6, had been committed to the Franciscan order before the end of the world. You can kind of know when something catches on by what later people write about it and have to do to adjust it. And so it was that in one of the catechisms that arose later, about 100 years later, Question four is whether it is orthodox to say that the Blessed Francis is the revealer of the evangelical life and rule to be propagated in sixth and seventh periods of the last days and the highest observer of it after Christ and his mother. Okay, so, the, so you can tell we've got to address a problem. And so what's the answer? We believe it to be false. We have to teach that because so many people embraced that Francis of Assisi was an end time figure and so forth. Italian brother, Dulcino, and his followers, called the Apostolic Brethren, believed that they were the only true church of the last days, they believed that the Roman church was the whore of Babylon in Revelation 17, and that the Pope was one of the beasts of Revelation 13. And so, believing that they were living in the last three and a half years of the end tr- time tribulation, Dulcino and his followers fled Babylon for the mountains of Piedmont. In the mountains, they armed themselves for conflict with the papal forces of Clement V. And then in 1307, a bloodbath ensued in which 400 of them were killed. Dulcineau was, was burned at the stake. The Dulcinites held to a pre tribulation rapture theory similar to modern dispensationalism. Okay, so that's the Italian edition. How about the pre-Reformation edition? John Wycliffe, okay, very important person, who was the first person to translate the Bible from the Latin translation into English in the late 1300s. He died in 1384, and he believed that the papal schism, which was happening during this time, there were two or three popes running around during this era... He believed that was a sign of the end. He also believed that the papacy of Innocent III signaled the loosing of Satan in Revelation 20, uh, verse 4. His followers were called the Lollards. It's not clear why they're called that. It might be because they were always speaking, and so it might be just one of those onomatopoeia things where it's la-la-la-la-la-la-la. They're always babbling on. That's one theory. I'm not sure. We don't know exactly what the basis of it. But anyway, in 1390... John Purvey, one of his followers, wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. In it, he stated that he was living in the last 45 years allotted to humankind for repentance. He believed that the persecutors of the Lollards were the end-time Gog and Magog. By the way, during this time, during the 1300s, the British Isles lost over half of their population due to plague. There's some pretty serious, dire stuff happening in their, in their world. It's not surprising that people would jump to the conclusion that this fulfills biblical prophecy. In 1400, a Lollard treatise entitled, The Lantern of Light proclaimed the imminent end of the world, saying, The great day of the Lord is nigh, and cometh fast, and wonders approach quickly. It shall not long tarry. So that's the End Times Madness uh, pre-Reformation edition. How about the Anabaptist edition? You know, the Anabaptists had to have some of this going on, and they did, certainly, with the person named Thomas Munster, a radical reformer who believed that he was living in the last days. They'd taken over a city. He says, it is already the time of Antichrist as is manifested clearly in Matthew 24. The Lord makes it known that when the gospel of the kingdom is preached in the whole world, then the abomination of desolation is to be seen. In 1528, the Anabaptist Augustine Bader believed that he was the end-time Elijah. He predicted that the last three and a half years of tribulation before the world would end would begin in 1530. Okay, how about the Reformation edition? In Times, Madness, Reformation edition. Well, you've got Luther and uh, Pope Leo X there. Luther, like most of the Reformers, came to believe that the papacy was the Antichrist and the abomination of desolation. That it is the Antichrist is critalized in the Westminster Confession of Faith and many Reformed documents. The Pope is the Antichrist, the section on the head of the church there in the Westminster Confession. And that's regularly used as an exception in places like the PCA and the OPC, people will say, well, I don't believe that the Pope is the Antichrist. They'll usually say something like, he is an anti-Christian force, but not the Antichrist, that kind of thing. If you look at the footnotes of the Westminster, the proof texts, they do assign the Pope to be the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2. So they were clear that that was the case. And Luther had this view, and it really arises out of that pre Reformation era where you've got Wycliffe and others seeing the great problems of the medieval Roman Catholic Church and then applying it to, you know, applying biblical prophecy to it. He said, What I've learned and taught from Paul and Daniel, namely that the Pope is Antichrist, that history proclaims, pointing to and indicating the very man himself. The sign of the abomination of desolation, i.e., the papacy, said Luther, compels me steadfastly to believe that Christ will not. Now stay long. And then Luther also identified Muslims, Turks, as Gog and the Pope as Magog, and the number of the beast as the years of the papacy. Now, here's a new one on the number of the beast. Um, I hadn't seen this before. Instead of looking at it as a number, it's a gematria. So, gematria is when the letters form a number. So, like and in most languages, before we got the Arabic numeral system, the first letter was one, the second letter was two. So Aleph is one, Beit is two, Gimel is three. And then it jumps to tens and so forth. And so the 666 is the combined uh, numerical value of the letters of this person's name. That's usually the way it's thought of. But he has a new, new view. He says, from 8666... <laughs> right after the Senate of Whitby till 1332, uh, the Black Death and Wycliffe. It shall be, it shall last 666 uh, years according to the number of the beast, as John says in Revelation. So now Luther says what that means is there's 666 years of Antichrist. That's his, I think, somewhat fanciful view. But uh, the reform folks don't totally get out of this. Um, if we want to say, well, those, those, that was those terrible Lutherans that had those thought. Well, not actually. Uh, plenty of reform folks had similar views. Hugh Latimer was one of those uh, people in Fox's Book of Martyrs who was killed by Bloody Mary in the 1500s uh, in, in the fights in, in England over the Anglican Church, and he believed that he was living in the last days. He died in 1555. He wrote, All those excellent learned men do gather out of Scripture that the last day cannot be far off. And in 14, 1549, Latimer preached in the presence of King Edward VI that the end of the world is near at hand. Antichrist, the man of sin, son of iniquity is revealed. The latter day is at hand. And so I have a picture there of the Geneva Bible. So do you know what the Geneva Bible is? It was, a, it was an English translation that started with Tyndale and kind of developed over the 1500s. There were several editions of it, but it was the first Bible to have notes in it that had explanatory information. So it had different uh, versions of it. it. It also touched upon these things. Even Philip... Melanchthon, who was very sympathetic to the Reformed side of the Reformation, calculated the number of the beast, 666, from the Hebrew letters for Rometh, meaning Roman kingdom. So there's another uh, view. He was associated with Luther. But the notes of the Geneva Bible in 1560 interpreted Gog and Magog as the followers of Muhammad and the papacy. And the Geneva Bible of 1579 said for about 666 years after this revelation, the Pope or Antichrist began to be manifest in the world. So even some of this is codified in the Geneva Bible. Uh, so I'm going to skip over some centuries here for the sake of time, but in times madness, 19th century edition. Now this is when it really goes haywire for America, at least, and all the way through the 1800s, especially for some reason, upstate New York, all this stuff happens in upstate New York, the Mormons, the Adventists, the, uh, uh, you know, the 7th Se- Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all these different cultic groups Forms for some reason in upstate New York. I don't know if it was a water source or what that was, but Alexander Campbell of the Stone Campbell movement, these are the people that founded the Disciples of Christ, Sharon grew up in a Disciples of Christ church, or the Church of Christ, um, if you've heard of that group, uh, claimed to be the Restorer of Primitive Christianity. The true gospel, according to Campbellite to the Campbellites, was lost for 1,300 years but restored by him. Among the early Campbellites, apocalyptic hopes ran high, and many shared the conviction that their own restitution of the ways of primitive Christianity served as a direct herald of the millennial age. So they believed the millennium was at hand. That's also true of the Second Great Awakening people, like Charles Finney, who was the person who came up with walking the aisle and coming up to the anxious bench. He believed... He was a post-millennialist. He believed the millennium had not happened yet. By, by doing evangelism as he was doing it, instead of crusade-style evangelism, they would bring in the millennium. This is a similar thing. So not a premillennial view, but a, a post-millennial um, view. So in 1830, uh, Campbell began a magazine entitled The Millennium. Its purpose was stated as follows. For the development and introduction of that political and religious order of society called The Millennium, which will be the consummation of the ultimate amelioration of society. So this ought to be a check on the post-mill types here, which I'm one of them, of not to start to say, okay, we're, we're bringing it in, it's all happening, you know, it's, it's taking place. And uh, not to be too overly realized in our eschatology. So also Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, his revelations in 1831... Like 1831 and 1832 were really hot years, as you'll see. There's a lot of this going on. Indicated the, Lord, uh, the day of the Lord was near. Smith also assured some of his closest followers that they would live to see the second coming. In 1832, Joseph Smith proclaimed the last day's gathering of the elect to Zion, which he believed would be in America. The city of Zion, spoken of by David in Psalms uh, 102, will be built upon the land of America. And that's in the Book of Mormon. You can see some references to that. Um, In Robert Owen, same year, 1832, communitarian founded the New Harmony Indiana Commune, announced that the second coming of Christ and the beginning of a millennial kingdom would take place in 1834, saying, this is the great advent of the world, the second coming of Christ. The time is therefore arrived when the foretold millennium is about to commence. William Miller, who spawned the Adventist and Branch Davidians, taught the cleansing of the sanctuary, the personal return of Christ to purge the world, would take place between March 21, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. And his book called Evidence from Scripture and History of the Second Coming of Christ about the year 1843. Latter-day Saints, in their September prophecy of 1832, recorded, uh, and this is recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants, if you've heard of that book, it's a kind of standard Mormon Text. The city of New Jerusalem shall be built in the western boundaries of the state of Missouri and dedicated by the hand of Joseph Smith, Jr. I don't know if you know that. So were, when the Mormons got going in the early 1800s, when they began to move and go west, there were groups that split out. So one went to Missouri. They're called the Reformed Latter-day Saints or something like that. And that's the prophecy they were referring to. And others went elsewhere. And then, of course, the large group, that followed, one of their key prophets went out, of course, to Utah. Sorry, what's the city? It's all Salt Lake City, yeah. So that's, well, but there's actually three or four different smaller groups too. Anyway, they all had a, an eschatological fervor. Neil Barber uh, believed that seven, 1873 marked the 6,000th year from creation and that the second coming of Christ would take place in that year. And Charles T. Russell, a follower of his, who founded essentially the Jehovah's Witnesses, taught that the millennial kingdom began in 1873. Uh, Russell then reset the date for Christ's return in 1874. Then he argued Jesus came invisibly into the upper air, and then uh, it was, he was only known to his followers. So my tactic when Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door, which I actually enjoy, is to say, now, I know you guys have set some dates on this thing. Oh, well, you know, they want to downplay that. Say... So you think the end is near? Yeah, oh yeah, it's very near. So Okay, could it last five years? Well, we can't set a date. Okay, could it last 10 years? And so I'll usually get them to 50 years. I'll say 50 years, and they're they're pretty much a hard, no, there's no way that you can get it past 50 years. Um, So that's a, a little tactic there just to mess with them on their date setting. But they have continually set things, and what they will do is, They'll say, well, it happened, but then it's invisible and only the followers can see it and this kind of thing. Or he entered the sanctuary, you know, so an invisible reality, non-falsifiable stuff, if you will. And so in 1888, L.G. White, Adventist co-founder, said that the mark of the beast was manifested in disregard for Sun- uh, Saturday Sabbath worship. So famously, of course, the Seventh-day Adventist. Worship on Saturday, and so that Sunday worship, she said, was the violation of the Fourth Commandment. what well, also believed that, that America was the second beast of Revelation 13. So, the Adventists, which kind of gave rise to Branch Davidians and other pretty sectarian uh, groups, were all about this fulfillment of the Book of Revelation. In Times of Madness, dispensational edition. Obviously, we had to get to that because. In our day, they've been the most prominent in so many ways. So Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel wrote, The last days are upon us, and the Spirit of God is being poured out. It's prophesied in the Bible that the Lord will pour out the Spirit upon, down upon all men, and I believe that it won't be long until we see the second coming of Christ. In 1978, from my understanding of biblical prophecies, I'm convinced that the Lord is coming for his church before the end of 1981. I guess people didn't like me talking about Chuck Smith there. <laughs> It's okay. I'll laugh. Yeah. This is not very uncommon just to say, I believe it's near, I believe it's near, without setting a specific date. And and thankful that there is not a specific date here, although many people did set specific dates. Edgar Wisnet, who literally was a rocket scientist, he worked for NASA. He died in 2001. He wrote this book entitled 88 Reasons Why, Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. He said, only if the Bible is in error, am I wrong? And (laughs) say that to every preacher in town that I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah 88. That's what I'm talking about, the guy that's on the phone with me saying, if you put down the phone now, you can never get your car warranted." Like this enforcement of this belief, like only if the Bible is wrong, am I wrong? That is very dangerous and stupid. I mean, just honestly, just really foolish kind of approach to it. I remember when I went off to seminary in 87, when I came back to do an internship at this Bible church that was dispensational at the time, there was a guy who was really into the prophecy stuff. And he had this book and he handed it to me. And I said, look, there's no way I don't need to read the book. I already know that you can't know this because the Bible plainly says that. And just in general, that's not the way God operates. And so but anyway, that was a, a kind of a controversy in the 87 and 88 when, uh, when that was happening. And, of course, it, Rosh Hashanah, I think, happens in September. So I remember there were people going, okay, this could be it. Is anybody around to experience that 88 reasons thing? Of course, then he ended up continually, you know, revising that thesis. But others who predicted that that date included Colin Deal, J.R. Church, Doug Clark, Hart Armstrong, Charles Taylor is a pretty significant guy. He's involved in Tyndale Publishing, I believe. Of course, Hal Lindsey, in his book in the 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon, asserted that the decade of the 1980s could very well be the last decade of history as we know it. Now. At different places, Lindsay pretty much said 1988 is the year, but I just quote him here for general effects. And that guy Wiznet, you know, in 1989, so it didn't happen in 1980, so 1989, the final shout, the rapture report of 1989, predicted that the rapture would occur in 1989. Then, 1993, 23 reasons why, you'd think this guy would just give up, right? Like, if I just I, put all your money on that. But in 1994, you know, he's, so just keeps on going, yeah, which, which makes it, of course, very mockable. Um, scorn and derision and mocking is not very often a good technique to use against other positions, but it's funny sometimes. And so, uh, Indy Wilson and Mr. Sock, uh, a sock puppet, wrote right behind a parody of The Last Day's Goofiness. And it's pretty funny. If you haven't read it, it's a canon press book, um, justifiably silly, I think. They got Jerry B. Jenkins, who was the sort of like the ghostwriter, co-writer, to respond uh, to the book, and this is what he said. If they're right, meaning the the parody, then millions of evangelicals are silly and goofy and stupid. Continue, <laughs> right? What are you going to say? And are being misled by people with ill motives. Well, I don't think that's necessarily true, although you know, there is a lot of money involved here. If we're that off base and doing a disservice to the church, it's all that much worse because of how popular our stuff is. Remember, 80 million copies. And, of course, that's right. It's like, yeah, actually, the point is, it is that much worse because people are taking this seriously. So just a quick, um, a quick survey of, of the way biblical prophecy stuff has been used in history. Look at all the figures believed to be angels in the book of Revelation. You know Martin Luther, Queen Elizabeth, uh, Loyola, Oliver Cromwell, Thomas Cranmer, groups that believed that they were the 144,000, the Donatists, the Franciscans, the Melchorites, Roger Williams and the Separatists who founded Rhode Island, uh, and right on down uh, through the Seventh-day Adventist uh, group, people who believed they were fulfilling end-time prophecy with a certain war, the Huns versus the Allens, the Allens versus the Goths, The Vandals, uh, et cetera. The First Crusade, the Turkish capture of Jerusalem, the later Crusades, Mongol invasion, et cetera. Gog and Magog candidates, the Goths, the Goths and Moors, the Huns, Islamic Empire, the Tartars, the Turks and the Saracens, the Mohammedans and the Papacy, the Pope in Spain, Native Americans. i politically incorrect to say that. Um, And then Antichrist suspects, Muhammad, uh, Pope John XV, the fifteenth. Pope Gregory, uh, Pope Innocent the, uh, the, the fourth. I mean, all the way through, there's plenty of those guys. And then the date set by the day, year-day theory. So I've already alluded to that. So people would say the creation is going to run for 6,000 years. So they calculate the end based on that 6,000 years. And there's going to be a seven on the 7,000 year, there's going to be a millennium. And so they've been set for 1521 all the way from that to 1843 so quite a variation there. Yeah. Yeah, so so we could still have a new phase of that if we want. But also it's also important to know that if you if you take the Greek version of the Old Testament's chronologies then we are past 6000 years. So like uh, like the Many people in the early uh, world, like Josephus, for example, Jewish, he used some Hebrew manuscripts that correspond to the Greek version um, because probably some of those were lost. Many people think that the the Jews in the medieval time after Christ changed the Hebrew manuscripts on some things, which I'm not sure if I buy that. I still stick to the Masoretic text. But anyway, there is a dispute. It gives you about a 1,000 years, so... If they're right, we're past it. So hopefully we are past it. You know, we'll see. In fi- Was it 50 years? How many years do we have to go, Kevin? Okay, 49 years. So, yeah. Wars. All right. Many wars believed were believed to be part of fulfilling this. From World War I and Two, Six-Day War in Jerusalem, even Desert Storm, uh, 20th century Antichrist suspects, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, of course, Henry Kissinger, sure, you know, John F. Kennedy, Gorbachev. Well, how could that not be the case? He had something red on his head, right? You know, the, Jimmy Carter, Anwar Sadat, Ronald Reagan, you know, many examples of this. Names which have yielded 666. So again, the Gematria idea. And it goes all the way back to very early, 1st, 2nd century. And I don't know which one's interesting here. William Laud, that one's kind of odd to me because he was a, uh, an English archbishop and was a very good guy, ex- excellent um, excellent comments very often Um, i'm not sure how you get in there napoleon hitler kissinger so i'm not sure how you get 666 out of hitler but who knows ronald wilson reagan um, and so forth okay lessons on interpretation this is where we'll we'll stop for the day Uh, don't use the millennial day theory that's lesson number one (laughs) don't use that that's a bad theory uh, we can talk about why that is in future weeks. Don't think the latest crisis fulfills biblical prophecy because it's happening to you. That's the other thing. Oh, no, the Democrats are in power. Ah, oh, the end is near. No, that's... Don't come up with a new religion if you live in upstate New York in the 19th century. Very important interpretive lesson there. And then don't pin the tail on the latest Middle East development, which is what we all want to do, um, especially those that are excited about prophecy. We are probably about out of time, right? Yes, sir. Is it not true that if all of these previous prophetic words were false, that today's word today is necessarily false and that true that, that we could be right this time? <laughs> That's correct. It's logically possible that someone could prophesy all the pin the tail on all those eschatological figures and they could be right. That's logically possible. It's exceedingly unlikely. And I think once you understand what is going on in those texts, which is what we'll look at in the next few weeks, you'll see that that whole enterprise is mistaken, I think, um, to do that. That's it. The last question. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming out. We'll have fun. This will be two weeks from today. We'll, we'll do our next presentation. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the full series for He Must Reign, An Eschatology of Victory, now available on Canon+. Plus. Just click the link in the show notes to start listening today.